My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here at Westbridge, and it's awesome to have you with us this morning. I want to say hello to everybody that's joining us online and our online campus. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, I want to say uh, a big shout out to everybody, uh, not only at our online campus, uh, we have a microsite that's joining us as well. Shout out to those guys. And uh, man, everybody in our parent viewing areas, thanks for joining us there. It's a great option if you have small children that you prefer to keep with you during the service. So just uh, so much fun to be here today. And we're in week two of a series called Identity. And so if you've got notes, I encourage you to take notes today because we're going to jump in and uh, work through this together this morning. And we're, we're taking several weeks to walk through a letter that the Apostle Peter wrote to a group of Jesus' followers who are living in the northern provinces of the Roman Empire. And I can almost imagine the excitement as people gather around this letter. It was felt by these first century believers, and they all showed up early that day because they, they heard that Peter had written a letter. And they knew who Peter was. They, they had heard that this guy, uh, they knew that he was an apostle of Jesus, that he had been with Jesus. In fact, he's got more speaking parts in uh, the, the stories of Jesus that we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, than anybody else besides Jesus. And so here's this guy, Peter, and he's written this letter to them. And here they are. They're scattered all over the Roman Empire, uh, especially these northern provinces that Peter is writing to. And the reality is that it's husbands and it's wives and it's kids, it's families, it's people who are trying to figure out how do, I, how do I make it another year with all the hostility that's going on, with all of the things that are going on in our world, uh, all of the, uh, the intense persecution from the Roman Empire. Uh, how are we going to survive with everything that's going on around us? And they're excited to hear what Peter has to say. And they, they, everybody knew Peter. And he's written this letter, and they're like, man, we're going to gather, and we're going to read this letter from Peter. And he had made this declaration early on. Peter was this guy who had made this declaration, Jesus is the Son of God. And Jesus said, man, that was revealed to you by God. And then uh, he tried to persuade Jesus not to go to Jerusalem because he said, you're going to be put to death. And we can't let that happen. And he tried to persuade him away from going to Jerusalem in his final days. And when Jesus said, no, this is going to happen, then Peter said, all right, then I'm going to be right there by your side. I'm going to die with you. And then in his hour of need, Peter fled. He abandoned Jesus. He denied that he knew him. And then Mark records this for us in his uh, gospel account of the life and, and teachings of Jesus that uh, after Jesus rose from the dead, the angels said to the women who found the empty tomb, hey, go and tell his disciples and Peter. Go tell his disciples and Peter. It's, it's really clear, like, make sure Peter knows. I want Peter to know that I am not finished with him yet, that his story is not done being written. And within a couple of months, Peter gives a sermon and about 3,000 people begin to follow Jesus on that day after his sermon. And the, the church is born, and there's all kinds of excitement, and there's all kinds of momentum, and they were told that Jesus is going to come back, and so they're waiting. They're going to just wait in Jerusalem until Jesus returns. <clears throat> and yet, after months go by, and after years go by, they're, they're running out of resources, and their excitement and their momentum starts to wane a little bit, and and eventually, because of intense persecution, they start to scatter all over the Roman Empire until in Acts chapter 8, it tells us only the 12 disciples are left. And so there's just this up and down emotional roller coaster all over the place. And here it is, it's nearly 30 years later now. And Peter is uh, 
writing to this group of people who have been scattered, and, and now it's the next generation, and, and their kids have grown and probably had kids of their own, and they're gathered together. They're, they can't wait. They, they show up early. They want to hear what Peter has to say to them to encourage them during this intense season of life. What's he going to say? It must be important. And we're going to gather, and we're going to read it, and everybody shows up early, and everybody's looking for something to hold on to to give them hope. And one of the first things that Peter writes is about remembering who we are, remembering our identity. And we read this last week. This is kind of the through line through this entire letter. He says this, God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So when we choose to follow Jesus, Peter says, you've got this new identity. You need to know who you are, and you need to know whose you are, because when you do, it changes the way that you live. It changes your behavior. And when you choose to follow Jesus, you choose a different path. You choose to walk differently. You're choosing a way of life that's going to cause you to stick out from the world from time to time. Just the way the rest of the world operates. And one of the core messages of 1 Peter is that when you know who you are, it affects the way that you live. And when you know who you belong to, it affects your choices. It affects your behavior. That our, our past choices don't determine who our, what our identity is, but our identity and recognizing who we belong to should affect the way that we live. And the truths that are found in 1 Peter are a reminder to those that are living in a broken world that there is a different way now for them to live. And today we're going to look at the second half of 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read through these verses together. And there's a word in here that, the, that Peter uses. It's this word holy. And we're going to sort of unpack that a little bit. It's a little bit of a church word. Uh, I'm assuming you don't use, you know, the word holy very often unless it's followed by an expletive, right? And so typically the word holy or holiness isn't a word that we use very often. But what Peter's going to tell us today is don't conform. Don't uh, conform. Continue to be different. Be the one that isn't afraid to stand out for the things that matter the most. And don't try to look and act like everyone else. Instead, try to look and act like Jesus. Because that's who you belong to. Now, think about this for a minute. Peter's world is out of control. It's filled with chaos. The Roman Empire is doing everything they can to persecute Christians and followers of Jesus. In fact, uh, by simply identifying as a follower of Jesus, you could get executed, uh, tortured, or killed. Uh, You could be put to death. You could be arrested. And so there's all kinds of things going on. And so Peter's reminding them what this is all about. He's reminding them, don't lose heart. Don't give up. Don't lose hope in the midst of what you're facing. And I wonder, when I read those verses that we're going to read today, if anybody else needs to hear that. Anybody else need to hear hey, don't lose heart, don't give up in the midst of everything that's going on around us today, in the midst of all of the chaos, in the midst of all of the unrest in our world, and the unrest in our nation, the unrest in our communities. Is there anybody else that just needs to hear, don't give up? Do you need to be reminded what this is all about? Anybody else tempted to lose heart and sometimes kind of Kind of just give up on this whole Jesus thing because everything going on around us is having an impact on what's going on inside of us. And I think this is such an important reminder. I think this letter that Peter writes is an important reminder, not just for first century followers of Jesus. I think it's an important reminder for us. I think it, it brings to the center everything that we're supposed to find our security and our identity and our hope in. And what Peter is going to do is give us the bullseye for following Jesus. It's to become like Jesus. 
That's the goal. That's what we're going after. The point of following Jesus is that we become like him. And we tend to think about uh, Christianity oftentimes in very transactional terms, meaning, okay, I'm, I'm gonna, God, I'm going to acknowledge that you exist. I, I've come to this mental uh, agreement that I believe you exist, and I'm going to ask you to forgive my sins. I'm going to pray a prayer, and now I'm in. And so now that I'm in, I'm going to just move on with my life. And it's very transactional. It's very sort of, you know, vending machine God, insert prayer request, punch in numbers, receive blessing kind of a deal. And yet, the truth is that following Jesus is much more relational than transactional. It it means I spend my time, my life, following his ways so that I start to actually look more and more like him in the way that I live. And I just want to unpack this for a minute because I think this is one of the the tensions that followers of Jesus... uh, sort of get mixed up in is this tension between grace and good works. Should we be doing good works as followers of Jesus? Yes. Does that bring us salvation? No. But there's grace, but there's also things we should be doing. And there's this tension, especially when we talk about, as Peter's going to talk about, holiness or being holy. And often as Christians, we get these sort of confused and we tend to fall into one camp or the other. And so it kind of looks like this. Here's the tension. Uh, Some people are all, all in on the grace camp. And the grace camp is just, man, you know what? This is just who I am. I make mistakes. I'm an imperfect person. God accepts me as I am. And, and man, I'm so thankful for God's grace. And they never change anything because they just go, hey, God accepts me. This is who I am. And other people really lean into the works side of it. And they're like, man, I better not sin. Uh, I, I don't, I don't want to fall to God's favor. I don't, I don't want God to be mad at me. I don't want to go to hell. You know, it's just this intense, okay, so God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a really good person because I, I don't want to tip the scales too far where I somehow behave my way out of the reach of your loving arms. And the root of this tension is that we often misunderstand these two words. And these are somewhat churchy terms, but these words are salvation and big fun party word here, sanctification. Like, oh yeah, I'm going to throw that in the next time I'm hanging out with friends. What is this word sanctification? Here's what this comes down to. If you're taking notes, write this down. Salvation is coming to Jesus But sanctification is becoming like Jesus. Okay, so these are two different things. Salvation is all about God's grace. It's about, I I don't do anything to earn that. And the reason this is so important is because one follows the other. We don't have a relationship with Jesus based on the good things we've done. That's not how it works. Salvation is coming to the reality that nothing I do on my own will earn God's love and acceptance. It's already given to you because that's who God is. That's salvation. Sanctification is now this journey, and it comes from this word to, to purify or uh, to, to consecrate. And it, it means that this, this journey of now I'm living in that reality, that I've already received God's grace. So now I'm living in that reality and surrendering to the transformational work of the Holy Spirit in my life to become more and more like Jesus. But that means I have a part to play. And God does the work of salvation and then he invites us into partnership with him so that we can grow and change and become like him, become transformed. Jesus doesn't offer salvation because of good works, but he does offer salvation so that we do good works. It, it, it's this tension between grace and truth, and, and grace is what opens up the door to following Jesus, but truth is what sets us free to become like Jesus. And if we lean too far into one direction or the other, grace leads us into license where we say, okay, it's just God accepts me and I can live however I want to. 
And if we lean too far into truth, then we lean too far into legalism and we say, oh, you better not. You ought not to. Nope, nope. The Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. And Jesus had this incredible ability to hold both grace and truth and to balance the tension between these things. And if we want to make a difference in our world, we've got to live different. So we can't just lean into grace. We've got to have this tension. You see this in story after story after story with Jesus. It's amazing. There's a a story in John chapter 4 where Jesus shows up to a woman at the well. And he, he calls her out. He leans into truth. And at the same time, he's, he's saying to her, I, I want to give you living water. And she tries to change the subject, and he says, bring your husband. And she said, oh, I don't have a husband. And he said, no, that's, that's true. You, uh, you actually have had five husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. And, and she, she goes, oh, well, we, tries to change the subject and deflect, and, and Jesus continues to just show both grace and truth. And he, and he sort of locks in on her and says, you know what, this is where we worship, but the time is coming when we're going to worship God in spirit and in truth. And, and he, he loves her, but at the same time, he leads her to live a better life. We see it with a woman in John chapter 8 caught in the act of adultery. And there, she's brought to Jesus. And again, uh, the, the men are gathered around to stone her, and, and Jesus says, let those of you who have no sin throw the first stone. And one by one, they walk away until finally it's just Jesus and this woman. And he says, does no one condemn you? She said, no. And he goes, well, neither do I. But go and leave your life of sin. He doesn't say, no, it's cool. We're good. He says, hey, that thing that you're doing, stop doing that. That's hurting you. I don't condemn you, but stop doing that. There's grace, but there's also truth. I love you, but I love you too much to leave you the way that you are. So now I'm inviting you into this partnership where I'm giving you my grace, but my truth can set you free to live differently. Here's how Peter says it. In this letter, he says, therefore, and anytime you read therefore in the Bible, you should ask what it's there for. And therefore, in light of everything that I've just told you up to this point, and remember, we went through this last week. He said, and if you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go check it out. He said, this is who we are. And so as a result of that, we followed, our behavior lines up with who God created us to be. So he says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. He's saying when your mind is alert and when you're sober and when you're thinking clearly, what you're going to see is that your hope isn't in the stuff going on around you. Your hope is in something so much greater. When you're fully alert, when you're fully sober, when, you're, when your mind is really thinking clearly, you're going to see that this stuff going on around you is temporary, that your hope is set in something eternal. He says, so... As a result of that, so you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old way of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. And it's, it's fascinating. God the Father, he says, knew you and chose you long ago. Therefore, with that in mind, you must live as God's obedient children. Because you now know who you belong to, now obey. Don't slip back into your old way of living and your own desires. And here's where we can miss it in the church. We, we tend to think that if we're offered salvation through grace, then my works really aren't all that important in my Christian life. Because I came to God through grace, it's all about grace. And in modern Christianity, what we tend to do 
And especially in the United States, we tend to overplay the grace card, and we tend to underplay the works card. And we, when we do that, we minimize the role that God actually wants us to play in the Christian life. That we come to Jesus, salvation is us coming to Jesus, and there's nothing we can do to earn that. But then there's this process whereby we actually partner with God's Holy Spirit, and we respond in obedience to the way God asks us to live, and as we do, we become more and more like him. That is what Peter is talking about. So he's reminding us, we live our lives differently, not to receive salvation, but because we already have. That matters. And God doesn't lower the bar in his expectation for us to be holy. He keeps the bar up, and he lifts us up to get there. That's what grace is all about. Peter's reminding us, because God has offered us salvation freely, our response is to live like Jesus. Our response is to become more and more like Jesus. Not so we can earn his love, but because we already have his love and we trust his way of living is the best way to live. And it's interesting, the ultimate goal is to become, the word he uses is holy. The word is to become like Jesus. And if Jesus is holy, we want to become like Jesus. And sometimes our standards look different than that. Sometimes our standards are, okay, how close can I get to sin without actually sinning? I just, want to, I just want to dance right up to the line, right? Or sometimes it's, you know, I'm just going to try to be a really good person. I don't want to tip the scales so that God's upset with me. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, I got some stuff going on in life, but I mean, have you seen so-and-so? I mean, I am not as bad as, I mean, I'm, I'm no Mother Teresa, but have you seen the guys in the band? And Jesus doesn't ask us to compare ourselves to others. He asks us to continue just to become more and more like him. And Peter's reminding us, Jesus has already done the work of salvation. But now that we have received his salvation, we have a part to play to live differently in this world. But here's what I love. Peter doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, this is just the goal and I hope you get there. He also gives us the motivation. He also gives us the incentive as to why this matters. And here's what he says. We have become citizens of a new kingdom. We have become citizens of a new kingdom. Now, this is a really big deal. And when you think about citizenship, that's kind of a a hot topic, you know, a hot button topic in our society today because of all the sort of political implications of our country. But when you think about citizenship at its most basic level, it simply means I identify as a citizen of a particular nation or kingdom, which means I submit my life and my way of living to their governance and to their rule of law. And whatever, whatever that country or nation or kingdom or tribe, however they operate, I submit to living that way. And I identify as a part of that nation or that kingdom or that tribe. And Peter is simply saying that when we were offered salvation from Jesus and we said yes to the, to the grace that God gave us, we, we got new citizenship. We became citizens of a brand new kingdom. We became citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we become part of God's kingdom. And Jesus in his way of life is what we follow and what we build our life around. The way the kingdom of heaven operates, it's governance. Uh, it's the lordship of Jesus. And, and the way that we live and the way that we love and the way that we operate in all of the areas of our lives should line up as citizens of heaven. Here's how he says it. He says, and remember that the heavenly father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge you or or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here as temporary residents. Your temporary residents. He says, if you want motivation to, to pursue this idea of becoming more and more like Jesus, 
this term holiness. He says, you're not a citizen of this world anymore. You don't operate the way that the rest of society operates. You're living by new kingdom standards. And it's very tempting to think of ourselves as citizens of earth trying to make our way to heaven. And Peter is reminding us, no, no, no. You are citizens of heaven simply making your way through earth. Since we are temporary residents here on earth and our true citizenship is in heaven, we live with a a reverent fear. And what what does that mean exactly, a a reverent fear? It means we understand our position in relation to the rest of the kingdom of heaven. We understand who the king is. We understand who who is Lord, who who is setting things up and how they operate and where we fall in line. It's the same way that my kids have a reverent fear in our kingdom. A reverent fear. Meaning, uh, okay, dad, we, mom and dad, we know that you actually have the power to uh, do a lot in our lives. But ultimately, our hope as parents is that they trust us. Not that we have to lean into any type of fear, but they recognize there's a, there's a reverent fear. In other words, it's not a we're scared of you. It's a respect for the fact that we understand our position in the family right now, right? We understand my, my seven-year-old understands that he can't just take his knife out of the cabinet anytime he wants to to go and whittle sticks. But he's got to ask permission. Now, there's going to come a day where that restriction will get lifted when he's 18. He doesn't live there anymore. There's, you know, my, my, my kids understand there's a reverent fear. There's an understanding of, okay, here's my position as a child. You're the parent, and I'm the kid. And we trust you as our parents. That's our hope is that we live in such a way that we can be trustworthy. But as kids, they have this reverent fear of, like, you actually have a lot of pull and sway in our lives right now. And it's the same way there's this reverent fear that Peter talks about that, okay, I understand my position in the kingdom of heaven, that I know I'm a citizen of heaven, but ultimately it's, a, it's a understanding you're God and I'm not. And I want to live in such a way knowing that I trust you and I belong to you. The grace of God takes away our eternal consequences, but there are still earthly consequences for the decisions that we make and the way that we live. And because God loves us and wants what's best for us, he asks us to trust him with the daily decisions that we make, to live in such a way that actually aligns with his kingdom so that we live as citizens of God's kingdom. But there's more to this motivation to pursue this kind of life that God wants for us as citizens of God's kingdom. And it's this. Our citizenship is free, but it is not without cost. It's free to us, but it did not come without cost. When, uh, when my son, Leighton, he's 13 now, but when he was about two years old, we had a, uh, a desktop Mac computer at our house. It was kind of the family computer. And one day he was kind of climbing up and he climbed up on the chair and he climbed up on top of the desk. And I don't know exactly what he was doing because, uh, you know, we were being really good parents and not paying attention. And we all turned because we heard a crash, loud crash. And there was the desktop iMac in pieces on the floor smashed screen. Uh, We could never recover anything off of that computer. It was just destroyed. Hard drive destroyed. Everything destroyed. How do you explain that to a two-year-old? Like, dude, do you know what you owe me now? You are going to be working this off for a long time. Like, you you can't even explain it. You You can't even describe what that cost to replace. And even if he could wrap his head around the cost of it, he couldn't afford to pay you back. Another time, my other son, I don't know why it's all sons that are destructive, and maybe it's just our family, but 
when, when my son Liam, who's uh, seven now, he was about two or three years old, and I was looking for my iPad. I go, where's my iPad? And, and uh, it was like one of those first-generation iPads. I don't even know if they're waterproof anymore, but this one definitely was not. And I found it the next day after a rainstorm on our deck. And I picked it up, and like water just gushed out of it. Like it was just full of water. How do you explain to him? How do you explain, hey, dude, that was like 500 bucks. You, you owe me big time. You're going to be doing chores for a while. There's no way that, you, that he can comprehend the cost, and there's no way he could pay it back. So do you know what we do in that situation as parents? Absorb the cost. That's all you can do. All you do is absorb the cost. And it's interesting that that's exactly what God does for us. That we, we recognize the salvation God gives us, the grace God gives us, it's free to us, but it doesn't come without cost. But our, our Heavenly Father absorbs the cost. Listen to what Peter writes next about our citizenship in God's kingdom. The next verses, he says, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. So remember before you had God's grace? Do you remember how empty life was? Do you remember when you're just living for yourself? Do you remember that uh, even when you got everything that you thought you wanted, life was still empty and, and kind of meaningless and it didn't? Do you, remember, do you remember what life was like before Jesus? You inherited that life from your ancestors? And now you received God's grace and you remember how it cost you nothing to receive God's grace? Even though you received God's grace and it was free to you, it still had a cost. It still costs someone something. And Jesus himself refers to himself as a ransom. In Matthew chapter 20, he says, I, I didn't come to, to be served by others. I came to serve. I came to give my life as a ransom for many. And this idea of ransom is, is something where, especially in the first century, if you were indent, indebted to someone, they could actually make you a slave and you had to work for them until you paid off your debt. And so you would be in slavery, but someone who was a relative or a close friend could actually go to that person who had become your master, and they could give a ransom, is what it was called, to redeem you. They could give a ransom to buy you back, to purchase your freedom. And this is the language that Peter is using. It's the language that Jesus uses about himself. That we became slaves to the way this world operates. That we became slaves to our own sinful desires. And that Jesus said, no, 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 no. They belong to me. And so he ransomed us back. That's amazing. And Peter's reminding us of this. And then he continues. He says, your ransom, it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. He's saying Jesus didn't, he didn't lay down bags of gold and be like, yeah, they belong to me. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. And now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God and you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. He's reminding them, hey guys, you have citizenship in heaven and it's free to you, your salvation is free to you, but it costs dearly. In fact, the best way for us as people who live in you know, 2021 in the United States to think about this is we recognize that we have freedom. We recognize that you know, in my lifetime, I've never experienced not being free. I don't think many of us have experienced not being free in our lifetimes if we were born and raised in the United States of America. 
And yet what all of us know from history is that our freedom came at a cost. Our freedom wasn't free. That there were people who sacrificed and paid a price so that we now could experience freedom. And while Peter didn't have that exact analogy, the idea is the same. Jesus purchased our freedom with his blood, with his sacrifice. Our citizenship in God's kingdom is free, but it it didn't come without cost. Jesus gave his life to pay the ransom so that you and I could live lives of freedom. Jesus gave his life so that we could have life. And Peter says, in light of that, when you think about that, don't go back to your empty way of living. Don't go back to how you were living before. And, And you know you inherited that from your ancestors, and it didn't fulfill you. So don't go back to a life of slavery to sin since your Savior purchased your freedom. What did that empty life ever offer you? What did that empty life ever sacrifice for you? You are now citizens of heaven, so live a life that reflects your allegiance to God's kingdom. And ultimately, here's what matters. In becoming more like Jesus, we learn to love well. When we talk about holiness, oftentimes in church circles, and I'm making a broad generalization here, But holiness oftentimes leaves love in the dust. Oh, we got to be holy. We got to be holy. Listen to this last part of this section that Paul writes, or Peter writes. It's amazing as if, it's as if this whole section is building to this crescendo. And and I, I can imagine Peter as he's writing this, he remembers the night that Jesus was arrested and betrayed. And he remembers sitting at the Last Supper. He remembers Jesus breaking bread and giving it to his disciples and saying, this, this represents my body which will be broken for you and passing the cup and saying, this represents my blood which will be poured out for you. It's a new covenant between God and man. It's almost as if Jesus was saying, this, this is the ransom that's going to be paid and, and Peter's reflecting on this. And as he's thinking through this, he's writing this letter 30 years later and he's remembering that night. He can probably still remember the sights and the smells and the sounds and, and it's so fresh even in his own heart and his own memory. And, and he's there when Jesus said that night, as I have loved you, you are to love each other. And so he, he remembers, he gets to these next verses and he reminds us, this is what it's all about. He says, you were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. In other words, he says you've been given new citizenship in an eternal kingdom. You have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. When we talk about this term, holiness, sometimes love gets left in the dust. It doesn't mean we don't associate with people who we deem as unholy. It doesn't mean that. We don't live different just for the sake of being different. That's not what it's about. We live differently because we live in a world that is bent on telling us to live for ourselves. And love demands that we live differently. And there's a huge difference between living differently and living separately being separate. Sometimes this is the message that people hear when it comes to being holy. Well, listen, uh, we have to be careful because we don't want to be associated with certain people and we don't want to be associated with certain things and we don't want to appear that we condone certain behaviors and, you know, we've got a reputation to uphold here. And 
That is not the message at all that you get from Jesus. That's not the message you get from the New Testament writers. It's not what Peter's saying. And the reason we sometimes get confused about that is because of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it was this old covenant that God had with the nation of Israel. And he said, come out from among the other nations and be separate. And sometimes we let that bleed into our version of holiness. And consequently, for many followers of Jesus, when we were handed the Bible, we were taught that's what holiness looks like. You should be separate from people. You should be separate yourselves from them, set apart from them. But then that very nation birthed the Messiah, and we have a new understanding of what it means to be holy. To be like Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that we don't rub shoulders with people who don't see eye to eye on various topics. The best illustration of the true definition of holiness is when John is writing his account and he's sharing his life experiences with Jesus and he's trying to figure out, how do I sum up this Jesus that I spent years with watching and following and how do I, how do I explain what it was like to be friends with the Messiah, the Son of God? And then the Holy Spirit inspires him to write these words. The Word became human and made his home among us. He said, all I, all I can say is it's like, it's like the Word, it's like God, it's like heaven this living, breathing word of God actually became human and made his home among us. Well, hold on, John. If this is the Son of God, and he's the holiest one, and he's supposed to be, that means, you know, that you have to be separate, and you have to be clean, then how is it that God, the most holy one, the most clean one, the most righteous one, became icky, messy, saliva-ridden, blood-filled human? That doesn't make sense, right? Shouldn't he, in his holiness, remain separate? And yet, God in his holiness doesn't remain separate. In fact, he doesn't just come to meet us. He becomes one of us. That's fascinating. And then Jesus freaked everybody out because he kept touching unholy things and unholy people. He kept touching messy, dirty, disease-ridden, unclean people. And the holy people, the people who thought themselves holy, as their definition of holy was, we've got to separate ourselves from the unholy, it means, okay, how, how can we, how can he be from God and keep touching unholy and unrighteous and unclean, disease-ridden people? That doesn't make sense. And it's because holiness isn't about not associating with or separating ourselves from. Holiness is learning to become like Jesus. And Jesus touched unholy people. And rather than being contaminated by their germs and their disease, his power went out from him and they were healed. And so holiness isn't making sure that we don't get touched by unholy people. Holiness is making sure that they get touched by us. And I don't give in to my selfish desires because that's all about serving me. That's about trying to build my own kingdom, trying to satisfy my own self, which is how an earthly kingdom operates. But as a citizen of heaven who follows the example of our Savior, I want to live in such a way that puts others ahead of myself. That's what holiness means. I act in the best interest of others, which isn't about preserving my reputation or trying to make a point. It's about making a difference. One more thought, and then we're going to put it all together. We've done a very dangerous thing in our society today, and I don't know where this started or where it came from, but what we have done lately, and you'll probably notice this, and I've seen it a lot, we have equated love with agreement. And what we've done lately, and it's very, very detrimental to our society and to the way that we love each other, is we have said, if you don't agree with me, then you don't love me. And there's a huge difference between love and agreement. And when we equate the two, we water down love. 
it's very possible to disagree with someone and still love them. And when we put those two things together and we lump those two, two things together, it's very, very, very difficult to love well. It does not mean that we agree on all things. In fact, if our friendship, if our love is rooted in agreement in all things, that is a very fragile friendship. We are in danger of not loving well because we have a disagreement with someone, because we don't see eye to eye on something, because we don't see something the way that they see it. As citizens of heaven who follow the example of Jesus, who follow the example of a Savior who prayed for his executioners to be forgiven, then we love others even when and especially when we disagree with them. When we don't see eye to eye, when we don't see the same topic the same way, we still love well. And to claim that any disagreement means that you don't love is simply watering down what love is all about. We are to represent his kingdom. It's what Jesus did for us. He loved well even though we were in our sins. He did for us what we are to do to represent the kingdom of which we have become citizens. So, let's put this all together. Here's what, here's what Peter is saying in these verses. Salvation is coming to Jesus, but sanctification is becoming like Jesus. And we have been made citizens of a brand new kingdom, so that's how we're to live, as citizens of a new kingdom. And what should motivate us is that that was free to us, but it wasn't without cost. It cost something. So in light of that new citizenship, and in light of the ransom that was paid to give us that citizenship, don't live a life that is all about pleasing yourself, because that is an empty life. Instead, live a life that follows the example of our Savior. Build your life around putting God and others first. And when you do that, you are pursuing a life of holiness as a citizen of heaven. That's what it means. And if you're here today, if you're watching online, and you'd say, I've never said yes to that invitation to be a part of God's family, hopefully today you'll see you are invited to take part in God's kingdom, as a citizen of God's kingdom, as a part of God's family. And that means you're accepted by God. You don't earn your way in. But it also means that once you receive God's salvation, once you receive God's grace, that you lean into the truth of God as well. And you say, now, Jesus... I want to follow you. Help me to live my life the way that you want me to live life. I'm going to give you the steering wheel of my life because I trust as a citizen of your kingdom that you know best. And so if you're here today and you'd say, man, I've never said yes to the invitation to be part of God's family. You're watching online and, and you want to do that. Just agree with this prayer as we close today. God, please forgive my sins and forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you. And I thank you that you never walked away from me. You continually pursue me. In fact, in your holiness, you didn't decide to stay separate. In your holiness, you actually became one of us. And you dwelt among us. And then you gave your life for us. And you paid a ransom so that I could be a citizen of heaven. And so I want to say yes to that invitation. And thank you that it's free. Thank you that it costs me nothing. Even though I know it costs you something. And so... Make me your son. Make me your daughter. Help me to be a part of your family and to live that out, that identity. And God, I pray for every one of us that as a result of following you, we would become more like you. That this wouldn't be simply a transaction that takes place in our lives, but this would be relational. That we would look to you as the leader of our lives. That we would trust you. That we would follow you. That our lives would become more and more like you. And as a result of that, that we would be more and more loving, that we would put you and others ahead of ourselves. We commit this week to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.